Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Good mid-morning. Good mid-morning back. Who is here that has been through all four science lectures? Awesome. Great. Glad to see it. Welcome to Livermore and the Bankhead Theater, and thank you for coming for the last of the four Science on Saturday presentations. Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory produces these science series with the help of local educators. As this is the last of the Science on Saturday series, I'd like to thank Mr. Dick Farnsworth, the manager of the Science Education Program for Livermore Laboratory, for bringing these teaching moments to you. Also, a big thank you to the staff, the camera people, and those who make these presentations possible. So let's give them a great big thanks. Today our topic is Super Heavy Elements, Search for the End of the Periodic Table. Now doesn't that sound like a title of a movie in which a swaggering scientist wearing a hat, carrying a whip, and is searching an Ikea store for a very special piece of heavy furniture? Okay, maybe not. But here to speak to you about heavy elements are Dr. Ken Moody, Chief Scientist of Radiochemistry at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, and Dean Reese, Physics and Biology Teacher at, at uh, Tracy High School. Dean received his BA in physics with a double major in astronomy from the University of Massachusetts in 2002. And upon a completion of his undergraduate de degree, Dean decided to move to California and try his hand at teaching, and he's been doing it ever since. Thank you, Dean, for becoming a teacher and for inspiring our future scientists. Dr. Moody has been a staff member at the Livermore Lab since 1985, specializing in heavy element science and radiochemical, radiochemical separations. He received his PhD in nuclear chemistry from the University of California at Berkeley in 1983. I'm sure that in the world of heavy elements, Dr. Moody is considered a rock star. If he had a band, it would be named the Heavy Elements. And in this, that is the name of the group where he is the senior member at the Livermore Lab. So what makes Dr. Moody rock? Well, he is the co-discoverer of six elements and more than three dozen heavy isotopes and has received the first prize award in nuclear physics from the Joint Institute for Nuclear Research. So let's get the lecture going, and please give it up for Ken and Dean. Thank you. Hey, good morning. Uh, thanks for coming. Uh, I know when the weather's nice like this, it's really kind of a shame to be inside, so we'll try not to go too long today. Um, I'm talking about super heavy elements, uh, search for the end of the periodic table. Probably the first thing that we should do is talk about what is a super heavy element. Uh, in the late 1960s, uh, there was, uh, when, when the periodic table ended at a much uh, a lower uh, element number than it ends now, there was a prediction beyond that the, beyond the heaviest known element, there was a collection of elements that might have very unusual properties, including very, very long half-lives. We called these the super-heavy elements. At the time, they were considered almost unattainable. Uh, this has been sort of the center point in my life for the last 30 years, and starting about 10 years ago, we had uh, some success, and I'll be talking about that uh, today. So um, this topic actually sort of lives uh, at an interesting intersection between the physics of nuclei and the chemistry of radioactive substances. 
As a result, there's an awful lot of basic information that we need to get through, and it actually killed an awful lot of the, of the hour last time. So uh, bear with me. We will get to the stuff that I consider you know, completely cool. Um, the uh, Part of what we will be talking about today is we'll understand the relationship between atoms and elements and between nuclei and isotopes. Uh, we're going to talk about how, nucle- how new elements have been produced in the past and how they're produced now. Uh, we're going to talk about how the periodic table can be used to predict the properties of elements that have not yet been discovered. And we'll talk about the things which could eventually lead to the end of the periodic table. Uh, this uh, picture is actually uh, an example of what you can do when you're paying artists in Russia in dollars. Uh, you can actually get some pretty amazing artwork. And uh, this is a picture of a heavy element scientist looking through the end of the periodic table at the underpinnings of nature. It's also just like a really nice picture. Okay, um, when I was in high school in 1969, sitting in my science class, this was the periodic table. Okay? The uh, periodic table ended at element 104, which was a fairly recent discovery. In fact, the element 104 was written in pen on the chart by the, by the teacher. Um, he told us that we might as well memorize it because there would never be any more elements. Uh, I don't want to uh, make it sound like he was speaking from ignorance. He actually was very up-to-date. At the time, it was thought that the end of the periodic table was probably right around element 104 or 105. So uh, let's talk about how the periodic table comes about. It actually all started early in the 19th century when it was noticed that certain chemical properties repeated. Okay? Uh, started out with a fellow named Doberiner in 19, or 1825. Noticed that uh, this group of three elements, chlorine, potassium, and calcium, when you put all of the known elements in a line by increasing weight, these three elements represent halogens, alkali metals, and alkaline earths. Halogens are elements that react with metals to make salts that are usually soluble. Uh, the alkaline metals, like potassium, are uh, metals that react violently with water and make soluble bases. Uh, alkaline earths, like calcium, react slowly with water and produce bases that aren't necessarily quite so soluble. It was noted that that same group of three, halogen, alkali metal, alkaline earth, repeated at bromine, rubidium, and strontium. Chlorine and bromine have very, very similar chemical properties. Potassium and rubidium have very similar chemical properties was also noted that iodine, cesium, and barium. Iodine's a halogen. Cesium is an alkaline earth. Barium is an, or sorry, cesium is an alkali metal. Barium's an alkaline earth. A lot of similarities between calcium, strontium, and barium. Okay. In 1871, Dmitry Mendeleev decided to reorganize the elements from 1 to N, putting the elements that had similar chemical properties in the same vertical row. And when he did that, he noticed some pretty amazing things. Everything connected vertically all had similar chemical properties to everything else in its vertical column. For instance, copper, silver, and gold are all connected vertically. Those are all the coinage metals. Uh, One of the particularly important things for us, for what Mendeleev did was, I mean, at the time, 61 elements were known. We know that there are a lot more than that. He predicted places where he thought that there should be elements that were not known yet, and later they were found. I think the big uh, thing for him was he 
saw that under aluminum there was a gap where there should be something, and he predicted the presence of an element, and four years later, gallium was found. Okay, so let's go back to 1969. Okay, here's the periodic table again in 1969. There are the halogens, including a couple that Mendeleev didn't know about. Okay, they're all in a vertical line. Actually, the properties of the halogens uh, let uh, Professor Segre and Berkeley discover astatine, which is element 85, based on the chemical properties of iodine. The next group over is hydrogen and the alkali metals. Uh, I didn't highlight the alkaline earths, but you'll notice that in going from the halogens to the alkali metals, uh, we skipped the noble gases, which are in between. Mendeleev didn't know about the noble gases. They hadn't been discovered yet. Doesn't affect, it doesn't affect the result, but it's interesting that he, no, he noticed it. There are groups in the periodic table. These are the representative elements, which are sometimes called the P block elements. You don't actually have to worry about the letters in front of the block. That's a spectroscopic nomenclature that's just the way people talk about things. It's, it's not worth going into today. These are the transition metals, which are some kind, sometimes called the D block elements. Down here, are the F-block elements, which are the lanthanides and actinides. Now, again, um, Mendeleev did not know about most of these elements, and so he did not include them in his periodic table. This is called the 18-column version of the periodic table. Actually, if you broke the periodic table between groups 3 and group 4, somewhere along here, and spread it out and stuck the lanthanides and actinides in there, you would have the 32-column version of the periodic table, we usually do it this way because in 32 columns, it just gets too unwieldy. It's, a, it's an awkward shape. So the periodic table, 1969, it is the roadmap to chemical behavior. Chemists, chemists physicists, uh, material scientists use the periodic table to discuss or, or to understand how elements combine, uh, how elements mix, uh, the chemical properties uh, with, which they, with which they operate, and the, uh, one of the great victories, actually, of Mendeleev in the periodic table was when element 104 was found, it was found to have chemical properties very, very similar to those of hafnium, which is the element right above it in the periodic table. So let's talk about a few basics. Again, I'll try not to bludgeon this to death. A lot of you have probably seen some of this in your science classes already. Uh, this, I, I, when this came up before, I was like amazed because I didn't know the electrons were going to move. I could, I could get like completely hypnotized. Uh, okay, atoms, smallest piece of an element that, contain, that maintains all of the properties of that element is the atom. Okay? Uh, the word atom comes from the Greek word for indivisible. Uh, of course, now we know that atoms have structures. Back in the old days, they thought they were blobs. An uh, interesting thing is or Mendeleev came up with a periodic table uh, without any knowledge of the structure of the atom at all. It was completely observational. Uh, the atoms made up of protons and neutrons, which reside in the nucleus, which is a very small volume at the, end of the, uh, at the center of the atom. Most of an atom is empty space. The electrons, which have a negative charge, circle the atom. The electrons are about one two-thousandth the weight of the protons and neutrons, so most of the mass is concentrated right at the center. Okay. Uh, electrons, uh, again, occupy the large volume. They're held in the atom by the attraction between protons and electrons. Several times today during the talk, you will have to remember that electrostatic attraction, 
Two like charges repel one another. Two opposite charges attract one another. So the attraction between the electrons and the protons are what keep the electrons from flying off. Okay. An ion, those of you who are doing your notes, is an atom which has either gained or lost an electron. If I add an electron to this atom, it becomes a negative ion because electrons have negative charge. If I take an electron away, it becomes a positive ion. This can happen in a physics experiment where you're running things through an arc. It can also be done in the test tube with, with chemical processes. Okay, uh, again, Mendeleev didn't know about the structure of the atom. Uh, but, uh, the uh, periodic table actually acted as sort of a testing ground for atomic theories for about 50 years until the advent of quantum mechanics when all of the structure of the periodic table could be explained by simple rules. Now, we're not going to beat quantum mechanics to death today because, I'll be honest with you, I don't really understand it all completely. But rules define how many electrons are allowed in particular energy levels in the atom. You cannot go over a certain number of electrons in an energy level. If you add another electron past that number, it has to go in an outer orbital. So sodium and potassium are two examples of alkali metals. They are completely filled electron shells. So sodium actually looks an awful lot like a neon atom with an extra electron. Because it's got one more proton, you need one more electron to counter the, the uh, nuclear charge. Potassium is a lot like argon, has 18 electrons in a closed configuration, and the 19th electron to balance the nuclear charge is outside. The inner electrical charges tend to screen the charge that the outer electron sees from the nucleus. The outer electron is out there. There's a whole lot of negatives between it and the nucleus, and it makes it look like it's seeing one charge. That's why sodium and potassium have very, very similar chemical properties. Sodium and potassium would both love, in a chemical reaction, to lose an electron, becoming a positive ion, and looking an awful lot like a noble gas. The chemistry of these elements is actually dominated by reactions in which an electron is lost so that they become a positive ion. So we've talked about atoms now. Now we've got to go into nuclear physics a little bit here. Nuclei and isotopes. Okay? The number of the protons in the nucleus controls the number of electrons around the nucleus because it's all electrostatic. The neutrons do not participate in that process to any significant extent. So if I have an atom of hydrogen which has a proton in the nucleus or an atom of hydrogen that has a proton and a neutron in the nucleus, the chemical properties are the same because the electrons gaining and losing control chemistry and the number of electrons is controlled by the number of protons. So these are the three known isotopes of hydrogen. Uh, regular, regular hydrogen, sometimes called protium, we call it hydrogen here. Deuterium, which is a proton and a neutron. Tritium, which is a proton and two neutrons. Protium and deuterium are stable isotopes, meaning that they've never been observed to decay. Tritium is a radioactive isotope. It decays to helium-3 with a half-life of about 14 years, and we'll talk about half-life in a minute. Uh, each element has a certain number of stable isotopes. Sometimes it's none. For instance, none of the elements heavier than bismuth have a stable isotope. Some of them have very long-lived isotopes, but none are stable. There are 81 elements that have at least one stable isotope. Gold has a single stable isotope. Okay, 79 protons. 79 protons in the nucleus makes it gold. 118 neutrons makes it a stable isotope of gold. 
If it has 119 neutrons, it's still an isotope of gold and has the chemical properties of gold, but now it's a radioactive isotope because it's unstable to decay. The element tin has 10 stable isotopes. It's the record holder. If you were an element, you'd like be real competitive with tin. Okay, so unstable isotopes. Isotopes that are not stable are unstable, and they are radioactive. Uh, radioactive decay is an unstable nucleus attempting to achieve a stable configuration by spontaneously changing to a stable form. Uh, we talked about that. Um, concept of a half-life. We've got a demo for you in just a second here. Half-life is the time it takes for half of the atoms in a sample to convert from one form to another. Some things have long half-lives, some things have short half-lives. You might think that uh, radioactive isotopes are something that you don't need to worry about, but actually radioactivity in nature is everywhere. There are primordial isotopes, uh, which are uh, in nature because they have very, very long half-lives. For instance, uranium has a half-life of 4 billion years. It's been here since the universe was, was created. Uh, the element potassium. Potassium in nature consists of three isotopes. Two of them are stable, one of them is radioactive. So if you're eating food that has a lot of potassium in it, like a banana, you're actually eating a radioactive substance. And if you put a banana next to a sensitive survey instrument, you can actually see the radioactive decay of, of, of a banana. So those of you who like bananas, I apologize for ruining your eating experience. The, there are shorter-lived things that exist in nature. For instance, radium-226. Radium-226 has a 1,600-year half-life. Hasn't been around since the beginning of time. It's there because the uranium, which has been there since the beginning of the time, decays to it and keeps it alive. There are also radioactive products like beryllium-7 and carbon-14, that are created constantly in the atmosphere by the bombardment of cosmic rays. So nuclear reactions are going on above your head all the time. Now, at this point, we're going to do a half-life demo, and I will turn it over to Mr. Reese. Okay. So Dr. Moody just talked to us about radioactive atoms, basically atoms that decay into another form. Um, I'd like to do a demo up here. Uh, I do need a volunteer for this. Um, this young lady in the gray sweater, would you like to come up? Thank you. Um, so... Today's demo is going to involve M&Ms, which are fun. Um, these M&Ms are going to represent atoms. Come on over. How's it going, Mr. Reese? What's your name? Cassandra Brown. Cassandra, nice to meet you. Um, let's take a look at this. So, so we have these M&Ms, right? And why don't you help me out here? I'm going to have to. I'm going to get you kind of involved with this. Let's flip all of these M&Ms so that the M's face up. Okay. Now. I've counted these out. There's 40 actual M&Ms here. Um, and if the, if the M is face up, that, that basically means that it's a radioactive atom at this point. And what happens is these atoms decay over time, and they turn into a new type of atom. So here, take this cup and just go ahead and grab all those 40 face-up M&Ms and put them in the cup. And I'm going to have you shake that cup up. And basically, that's going to signify time happening. So time is just occurring and ticking away, and what's going to happen is that by this random nature of radioactive decay, some of those atoms, the ones with the M face up, will decay, some won't. So let's go ahead and kind of pour them back into the plate, and now what we need to do is remove anything that doesn't have an M face up, and you can go ahead and put those back into this cup. So all the ones with M's face down, those in our little analogy here have radioactively de decayed into something different. <laughs> 
And so I'll help you out here just for the sake of speeding this along. Okay. And then what we'll do is we'll count up how many of these M's, these radioactive atoms we have left. So it looks like we have 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, 14, 16, 18, 22. So we start off with 40 M&Ms that were all radioactive. We're down to 22 M&Ms that are radioactive. And we could go ahead and repeat the process again. So scoop those up and put them in the cup. And as you can see, progressively our sample size is going to get smaller because the radioactive decay changes radioactive atoms into a stable form, but some of the radioactive atoms you know, stay behind. Okay, so go ahead and pour that out. Okay, and let's do the same thing. Grab all the ones that are face down, remove them from the sample, and we'll see how many we have left. 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12. Okay, so we went from 40 to 22 to 12. You can imagine that it's just going to get smaller now. And so one thing that I, that I want to uh, just emphasize is this, this term half-life means how long it took for half of your M&Ms to turn into the stable atom, to go from radioactive to stable. So in our little experiment, after one uh, you know, dump of the cup, we were down to 22, not quite one half-life. So, so the time hadn't occurred long enough to create a half-life. Our half-life would be somewhere in between the first uh, cupful and the second cupful that we dumped on the plate. Okay, so I just want to thank Cassandra for coming up here. Thank you very much. And you can have a treat. You can bring these back to your seat and enjoy M&Ms if you like. Here. Why don't you take those? Sometimes when you have like a male student up here do that, you shake out, you pick up 40 and you shake out 36 or something. It's <laughs> funny, funny, how that, funny how that works. Um, okay, there are several types of radioactive decay. I'm not going to go through all of them with you, but a few that are important to our talk are uh, on this slide. Uh, beta decay. If I have a, an isotope that has too many neutrons... There's a, a, there's a stable configuration. This one has too many neutrons that make it radioactive. It's going to want to convert one of those neutrons into a proton by emitting a, an electron. It's called beta decay. So when a neutron becomes a proton, it becomes more positively charged. It has to lose a negative charge in electrons emitted by the atom. This is particularly important for us because this is one of the ways that you can actually synthesize new elements past the end of the natural elements. If I have an isotope of uranium and I add neutrons to it until it is not stable or, or not very long-lived anymore, it undergoes beta decay. When the neutron's converted from a neutron to a proton, I mean, you've made element 93. That's a path to new elements, beta decay. We call that the indirect path. Now, beta decay processes dominate for the light elements. When you get up to, like, lead and heavier, then you start to have competition with beta decay from alpha decay. Alpha decay actually is, is a response of the nucleus to having too many protons crammed into a small space. Okay? Protons packed in against protons is very, very, it, it's very hard to do. I mean, you're, you're pushing an awful lot of positive charge, a lot of repulsive material together in one small volume, mediated by the neutrons, but eventually it just can't work anymore. And in order to get rid of charge to become more stable... In alpha decay, it will eject a helium nucleus, which is two protons and two neutrons. So it not only gets two elements lighter, it gets four mass units less. So here we have a picture on the left of a plutonium isotope emitting an alpha particle. Plutonium is element 94. 
Uranium is element 92, so when you've emitted the two protons in the alpha particle, you've gone from 94 to 92. Something that is not on the view graph and is also very important to our discussion and relates back to the periodic table in 1969 is that when you get up to about element 97, 98, spontaneous fission becomes important. At that point, you've crammed so many protons into a small space that the nucleus just wants to fall apart into two roughly equal sizes. That will be the eventual end of the periodic table, is the fission process. Okay, so is there an end? In 1969, my chemistry teacher, who was up on the latest nuclear theory, knew that if the nucleus was just a blob of charge, a blob mixture of protons and neutrons, then the Coulomb repulsion or the electrostatic repulsion between the protons would cause the periodic table to end at element 104 or 105. It would not be possible to put any more positive charge into the nucleus. Okay, nuclei are not blobs, though. Electrons, we discussed earlier, have shell structure. Certain configurations of electrons, those associated with the noble gases, are very, very stable. They're very, very resistant to chemical processes. The nucleus actually also has a shell structure. Certain number of protons and neutrons are allowed in certain energy levels. Those nuclei are resistant to nuclear processes like fission. There are rules that control how many protons can be in, the, in a shell. Okay, when these nuclei were discovered, it was not known why they had extra stability. It was not able to explain their nuclear properties. So they called the numbers of protons the magic numbers. We don't understand it, we're going to call it magic. The name has stuck. Even though we know what causes it now, we still call them the magic numbers. Okay, do we expect the magic numbers to be the same as the atomic numbers of the noble gases? Probably not. The reason is because in an atom and the electrons, you have a central potential with negative charge rotating around it. In the nucleus, you don't have a central potential. The charge is distributed amongst all of the nucleons, so the structure is completely different. And so the magic numbers are actually not the same as the numbers of the noble gases. So here again, I, I'm sorry I'm stuck in 1969, but you know, some, you know, that was, it was my best year, what can I say? Uh, oops. There is the atomic numbers of the noble gases over on the right-hand side of the chart. Here are the magic numbers. Okay? In 1969, these were the known magic numbers. Oxygen, calcium, nickel, tin, lead. One of the reasons that tin is so great and has all those stable isotopes and is the envy of all the other elements is because it is a magic number. Everybody thinks about, when they think about stability, they often think about lead. Well, the reason that lead is so stable is because it has a magic number of protons. Okay. Nuclear theory, right around 1969, was finally able to calculate and understand the effects that result in the magic numbers. So the next logical step is, I understand the magic numbers, where's the next one? And it turns out to be 114 protons. Okay. So people got really excited about this. Holy smoke. Maybe the periodic table isn't ending where it is. Maybe it can extend out to element 114. 
Question is, even though theory was able to predict the magic number, it didn't know how far the effect extended. Did it extend broadly over several elements, or was it focused completely at one particular place? My old boss at Berkeley used to like to show uh, mountain pictures, so I'll put this in for him. Okay, is the effect around element 114 like half dome, and is only restricted right around element 114? Or is it more like Mount Kilimanjaro, where it's extended over many, many elements because its effect is broad? He used to like to use Mount Diablo, but I couldn't find a picture. Okay. So, now we're going to start our voyage. We're going to start our voyage to making new elements. We're going to go back to 1940. Okay. Here is the periodic table in 1940. First thing you might want to notice is that those elements are not where they were in 1969. The reason that it was so hard to discover element 93 in the early days was for two reasons. One is the only mistake that Mendeleev made in 1871 was he put those elements at that location in the periodic table when they really belonged under the rare earths. Now, he could probably be forgiven for that because we did not know the lanthanides existed at that point. He put them where he thought they should go. He saw a few similarities between uranium and thorium and the, and the elements immediately above them. The other thing that impacted our ability to find Neptunium, element 93, was that when people bombarded uranium with neutrons, instead of making one or two new radioactivities, they made dozens of radioactivities. Nobody could understand it. If you go back and look at the chemical literature at that time, the explanations they came up with were, were, were crazy. I mean, it just didn't make any sense at all. The problem was that uranium, being, having a lot of protons, is very, very prone to fission. If you tickle it a little bit and excite it, like you do when you pump a neutron into it, it will fall apart and make fission products. So actually, people were misidentifying the fission products as new heavy elements for about five or six years before somebody, Otto Hahn and Eliza Meitner, figured out that what was happening was the nucleus was fissioning, and they discovered the fission process. Uh, so when elements 93 and 94 were first produced, chemically they were not isolated because, again, those being in the wrong place, neptunium does not really resemble the element above it, rhenium, very much at all. And so a chemistry based on rhenium chemistry was unsuccessful at retrieving neptunium. And plutonium isn't anything like osmium. They, they're not, there's no similarities at all. So one of the great uh, radio chemists of all time, Stan Thompson, actually kind of figured out what was going on and was able to identify and develop chemical processes for neptunium and plutonium. And about the same time, 1945, after americium and curium were discovered, they were moved down here to their current location, which is where they reside today. So it took from 1871 to 1945 to, replace, to, to correct a small error that Mendeleev had made in the original formulation of the periodic table. Okay, uh, so we want to put neutrons into a nucleus. We want to make new heavy elements by beta decay indirectly. Best source of neutrons is, is a nuclear reactor. Uh, when I'm in a room with like a reactor guy, we, we will get into arguments of, about this graph. And that's because a reactor guy is interested in fission. Reactor guy wants fission. Fission makes neutrons. Neutrons make more fission. That's how the reactor operates. It makes power. So he thinks that 64% over there going toward fission products is a good thing, and he thinks that the 36% that goes toward capturing and making heavy elements is a bad thing. Okay? 
Well, of course, he is completely wrong. Heavy elements rock. Okay, so um, anyway, you can see that the process is very, very inefficient. Uh, when I make plutonium, I've lost 64% of my material to fission to make plutonium isotopes. As I capture neutrons to make Pu-240, make Pu-241, several places along the way I compete with fission again. When I get to plutonium-241, plutonium-242, plutonium-243, finally at Pu-243, I've made an activity that beta decays. So a neutron decays to a proton, and element 94 becomes element 95, a new element. The element 95 captures neutrons until it accounts, until an isotope is produced that beta decays. At that point, neutron decays to a proton, you make curium. You can see that the process is very, very inefficient, though. By the time I get to the californium isotopes, only three-tenths of a percent of the things that react survive the fission process and have become isotopes of californium. The heaviest element that you can make in a reactor, you can make very, very small amounts of element 100, fermium. Okay. The reason is because there are no beta-emitting fermium isotopes. You get, you get into the fermiums, you decay across them, eventually you find a very short-lived fission activity and everything ends up down on the fission products. That's the end. So uh, I always have to put in, uh, because, because somebody always asks, what are the practical applications of these things? So we're going to talk about the reactor isotopes here for a minute. Okay, we all know the uses of plutonium. Plutonium is a nuclear fuel. Uh, one thing that you might not know is that the plutonium isotopes that are not fissionable uh, are also usable for energy production because of decay heat. This is a wafer at the top there of plutonium-238, which is glowing red because of the energy being released in its alpha decay. So that's actually red hot. Those are used in very small volume um, electrical generators. The source of heat is used to produce electrical power. If you ever get a chance to see one of those, it's like completely eerie. It's like the eeriest thing you've ever seen. Okay. Americium, element 95. Americium 95, element 95 is it probably in most of your homes. The sources in smoke detectors ionize smoke particles by bombarding them with radiation from an americium source. The, uh, there's a curium isotope that's used, same as plutonium-238 in thermoelectric generators. Uh, Californium, element 98, is the, uh, probably the holy grail of applications. You can use it for a lot of different things. Uh, the neutrons that come from the fission of californium are actually used in medical treatments of various kinds. They're used in radiography and large-scale engineering. And uh, they'll lower a californium source down a hole uh, when they're doing oil drilling to see if the neutrons scatter off of the hydrogen isotopes in oil. Okay. Now, at this point, everything heavier than this, I have no practical applications for you. Um, they're all designed to uh, extend our knowledge of nuclear structure and, and the atomic theory. Uh, new knowledge is always a good thing. We'll always end up using it. Uh, the example I like to give is uh, I, I was at a talk once many, many years ago when somebody asked a NASA guy why we went to the moon. What the heck, what the heck use was it to go to the moon? And his response always stuck with me. He said, well, you know, I can't really defend going to the moon, but to get there we had to invent Teflon. <laughs> Okay. Um, at this point, I cannot point the Teflon out to you in, in this subject. So from now on, forget Teflon. It's very, very pure research, but knowledge is always a good thing, and hopefully someday we will find the Teflon. 
Okay, um, elements 99 and 100 were actually not produced in reactors. They were produced in a nuclear explosion. They were discovered in the debris of the Mike test in 1952. We saw from that barred graph a few view graphs earlier that in reactors, you slowly capture neutrons and occasionally run into a beta decay, which takes you to the next higher element, and then you continue to capture across. And the process in a nuclear explosion, which is also a big source of neutrons, is completely different because the neutrons are all delivered in a very, very short period of time. So instead of capture, decay, capture, decay, you have capture, 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 and then beta, and then decay, 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 decay. Uh, unfortunately, while it was useful for discovering Einsteinium and fermium, again, the path ends at element 100. You cannot go any higher than that. So... At that point, you have to abandon the indirect process of neutron capture followed by beta decay and go to the direct process where you actually have to put protons into the nucleus to make its atomic number go up to make a new element. Now, this is very difficult because protons have the same charge as the nucleus that you're trying to put them into, so they are repelled from one another. Okay? There is a repulsive force between them. So you have to accelerate the protons to very, very high energy to get them over the barrier to have them collide with the protons and fuse to make the new elements. So we're going to do an accelerator demo for you at this point. Okay. So, Mr. Reese. So, so I'm, I'm assuming that at some point, maybe if you pay attention to the news or something like that, you've heard the word particle accelerator. Um, and so some, some people are like, why would you want to accelerate particles in the first place? And uh, Dr. Moody was just kind of talking about it. In order to create these heavy elements, you have to take positive nuclei, and two positive things want to repel. And you, you have to get them going really, really, really fast and slam them into each other to get them to combine and to beat that repulsion force, that, that force that makes two positives want to push apart. You have to beat that by having enough energy upon impact to get the nucleus to actually combine to form a heavier element. So uh, th this, this apparatus here was actually designed specifically for this talk and built for this talk by a gentleman by the name of Tom Crabtree, who's in the, st in the audience with us today. Here he is. If you could stand up for us. Thank you. I'd like to, I'd like to acknowledge his hard work. He's a uh, retired uh, technologist at Lawrence Livermore National Lab, and he also volunteers at the Discovery Center now. So he built this. Uh, and he, you know, inspired by an idea actually off of YouTube, um, we, we, we were searching for other kind of homemade particle accelerators. And just as a note, uh, this is not something that you want to try to build at your own house. This is something that, like, professionals should be building. It's, there's, there's power sources involved, and they can be dangerous. Um, but, but uh, yeah, we're, we were lucky enough to have one built. So let me, let me talk to you uh, about it a little bit. First of all, the particle that's going to be accelerated is, is a uh, ping-pong ball. It doesn't look like a ping-pong ball because it's been coated with a metallic paint. And, uh, you know, what's one thing that you know about metals? Yeah. What is it? Okay, that's true. If they have moving charges, they could be attracted to magnets. What else about maybe metals that makes them, yeah, you know? Yeah, so, so metals are good conductors of electricity, and they have, they have loose outer electrons, okay? That's one thing that makes metals, you know, metals, is that they have loose outer electrons. So you have this power source in this punch bowl, and you can tell from, from looking inside that there's some positive bands and some negative bands. And the positive bands attract electrons off of this metal, you know, coated ball. 
And so the electrons that will actually get pulled into the positive band and removed. And when they leave, guess what charge the ping pong ball becomes? Positive. And now it's still next to a positive band. So the two positives will repel that will push this ball in, in a direction. It'll also bring it closer to the negative band. And now again, you still have the positive ping pong ball, but it's being pulled towards the negative band because opposites attract. And once it gets to the, the negative band, it actually, the electrons return to the surface and it becomes negative there, and then it repels off the negative band and it just kind of keeps getting pushed and pulled and pushed and pulled. So let me kind of show you how this works so you can kind of see it. And there it goes. So just by running power to this and creating a voltage, uh, this wants to just move in circles. And if this was a particle and a particle accelerator, you would have a really high voltage. You'd get this moving around really fast, like speeds close to, close to the speed of light. And then you would slam it into another heavy atom and, and in hopes that the two positive nuclei will have enough force that when they hit, they'll create a larger positive nuclei. And that's how you can discover heavier elements. Okay. Yes, high voltage. <laughs> okay. Can we go back to the view graphs? Okay. Um, part of the problem is to overcome this potential barrier that Mr. Reese was talking about, you've got to really slam these nuclei together hard. What happens then is that you're forced to produce a nucleus that has a very, very high level of excitation. It's, it, you can think about it as heat. If you're, if you're throwing two liquid drops at one another, they basically boil because you've thrown them at each other so, so hard. Because the resistance to fission is dropping as the charge in the nucleus goes up and up and up, the probability of the products that you're making surviving drops. So, for instance, in the experiments that were done from uh, starting in 1969 to about 19... Yeah, well, say 19, 1950s to 1969, when these reactions were used to make the, atom, the isotopes of elements from 101 to 104, uh, element 104, we can actually make several atoms per minute in a, in, a, in a charged particle bombardment at a particle accelerator. Maybe that doesn't sound like much, but if you go to element 106, you can only make several atoms in an hour. And if you go to element 108, you can only make several atoms in a day. Now, we are trying to assault the island of stability at element 114, and to skip ahead a little bit, we actually have to throw 10 to the 18th particles at a target. That's a million trillion particles to have one of them survive the fission process to make the new element that we're interested in. It takes many, many, many days, maybe weeks, to generate 10 to the 18th particles and accelerate them and deliver them to a target. So you do not make an atom of these things very often. That's why these experiments are so difficult. Actually, also, there's a tendency with, with increasing charge for the half-life of the things to become shorter. Of course, we're hoping that the effect of the magic number at 114 will, will counteract that to some extent. So from 1970, when, I, when my favorite periodic table ended, to 1996, elements 105 to 112 were produced at various laboratories throughout the world. At that point, it became obvious that it was time to think about assaulting the shores of the island of stability centered at element 114. Now, I'm going to talk about those experiments a little bit here. 
So a super heavy element has to start out with heavy element target materials. To do these experiments, we actually start out with isotopes of plutonium, americium, curium, bombard them with heavy ions to make the heavier elements. So first you have to produce the target materials in a reactor by the processes we talked about. This is the high-flux reactor at Oak Ridge. They're pulling out a target that's been irradiated to make curium for about 18 months. You can see from the blue glow there that it's very intensely radioactive. They handle it under a pool of water. Okay. Uh, after that, you have to take that target and you have to separate out the things that you're interested in. Remember, there's an awful lot of fission products there. So the picture on the left is an ion exchange column. An ion exchange material is a material that has a certain chemical attraction to certain elements. You pick your ion exchanger. In this case, curium is stuck to the resin. The fission products are dribbling through and being collected in a cone down below. So you can see from the blue glow, the fission products are, are very intensely radioactive. This picture is taken through six feet of water uh, to protect the chemical operator of this thing. Curium itself, uh, when the beta particles from the fission products hits it, glows bright orange, which is sort of what you see there at the top of the column. There's a water jacket around that that cools it because the reagents tend to boil from the radioactivity. Nothing's quite as interesting as trying to do a, a chemical separation on something where the solutions are all boiling while you're trying to work with them. Anyway, after that, uh, the curium itself is not terribly radioactive. You can move it into a glove box and handle it just for, with respiratory correction, protection. I include the picture there just to prove that I didn't always have white hair. Uh, <laughs> maybe this is why I have white hair. I, I don't know. Okay. Uh, uh, after you've purified the materials, you have to fabricate them into a target. That's the picture on the right there. That's a curium target that was used in the production of element 116. Um, in this country, when we do uh, uh, pictures for scale, we'll put in a pencil or we'll put in a quarter. For some reason in Russia, they always put a wristwatch in the picture. I, I don't know why, but after the picture was taken, the guy put his wristwatch back on and went to lunch. Uh, the... Uh, Curium target then is irradiated with ions from the U400 cyclotron. So this is the big version of the punchatron punchbowl accelerator that Mr. Reese showed you. Uh, calcium ions are delivered. Calcium has a, a nuclear charge of 20. Uh, curium has a nuclear charge of 96. 20 and 96 makes element 116, which was what we were trying to make in the experiment. Uh, products fly out of that target and are separated in flight by a recoil separator. So you can see the targets there. The, the beam comes in on the edge of the target, which spins. So if you think a curium target's exciting, think about a curium target spinning at high speed. The reason the target spins is to distribute heat over a large area. We're working right at the limits of what materials can stand here when we do these experiments. The products that we want are separated by the separator and are, are diverted into a detector array. Uh, the picture on the right there is uh, an americium target for an element 115 experiment being inserted into the gas-filled separator. Two guys wearing face masks and Vladimir without his face mask on. Uh, the detector system looks like this. Uh, the detector is actually very, very cool. Part products fly through the separator. The 10 to the 18th particles that we don't want get diverted off to one side. The particle that we want gets sent through to the detector. The detector can see the impact. It measures an energy signal from the product coming through the separator and hitting the detector. The detector also sees the radioactive decay of the products that go on. 
If the concept of the island of stability is correct, then what you expect to see is an impact followed by alpha decay, perhaps followed by several alpha decays, until you've alpha decayed off the edge of the island of stability into the sea of instability where everything will fission. So our signature of something new is impact, alpha, 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 fission. And that's indeed what we eventually saw. So um, the whole process is demonstrated pretty well in this movie. If I can figure out how to do it here. Yes. So hold on to your seats. The discovery of the newest super heavy element, element 117. A target made of the element berkelium is in place in the U-400 cyclotron at the Joint Institute for Nuclear Research in Dubna, Russia. Calcium ions are accelerated to high velocity toward the target of berkelium atoms. The calcium ions bombard the radioactive berkelium target for 150 days. As they approach the target, only one of billions fuses with the target to create element 117. At this point, the newly created element 117 travels through a separator and stops in a detector. The experiment produced six atoms of element 117 during the 150-day run. At the detector, element 117 decays to heavy element 115, to heavy element 113, and so on. Finally, the nucleus fissions, ultimately splitting into two lighter elements. Okay. I thought that was completely cool. You'll have to forgive me, I'm not a Mac guy. This takes me a minute. Okay. I'm an old take your blank plastic on the airplane and draw your view graphs while you're going to the conference with a pen guy. Okay. Um, so in the last 12 years, we've actually produced six new elements. Uh, so we have Darmstadium, Rentgenium, and Copernicium, which were discovered at the uh, German laboratory GSI, followed by 113 to 118, which are our discoveries uh, working with the Dubna laboratory. You can see that the half-lives of these things are... Okay, don't get me wrong, it's very exciting. I mean, these things don't fission. They decay by alpha decay. So there is an island of stability. Okay. What's disappointing is we would hope for days or weeks half-lives so that we could do easy chemistry experiments. We can still think about doing chemistry experiments, but it's very, very difficult. You've got to do things fast. Okay. And we are developing techniques for doing that. Okay. One thing that I should emphasize is that these are the half-lives of the isotopes of these elements that we have made. Now, one thing that I have not talked about is that there is also a magic number of neutrons that is close by, 
We don't know how to make these elements with the magic number of neutrons, but when we figure out a way, we're hoping that these things will have longer half-lives and perhaps higher production rates so that we can make more than a few atoms per week. So, can you think about doing chemistry when you've got a sample that has a single atom in it? Okay? We demonstrated this uh, as a support for our discovery of element 115. The element 115 isotope that we made decays by a series of rapid alpha decays to an isotope of dubnium, element 105, which has a half-life of about 20 hours. Okay? We can only make about one atom of 115 every day or so. The element 115 atom is collected. It's allowed to decay to dubnium, and at that point, chemistry is performed on the 20-hour activity, quite often with just a single atom. So how do you design a dubnium chemistry? Well, you've got to go back to your old friend, the periodic table. I hope you are uh, becoming attached to the, to the periodic table. Okay, Dubnium is at the bottom of group 5, okay, which includes vanadium, niobium, tantalum. Okay, so tantalum is actually our model element for designing a chemistry to isolate dubnium. So we perform the experiment. Uh, you see the fellows there uh, putting the americium target into the chemical apparatus. Uh, when I go to Russia, I get to wear that hat. Uh, kind of awesome. Anyway, uh, the beam comes in and hits the target. Products recoil out of the target and are collected on a copper block. The copper block collects everything. It doesn't separate at all. Everything that's made in the reaction hits the copper block. Every day or so, okay, the, the, the element 115 comes through there. As soon as it hits the copper block, decays, builds up the 20-hour 105 isotope. We take the copper block, we machine the surface off the copper block, which is where the products we want are. We put it into that Teflon container up in the upper right, and we do chemistry, and... That is my old buddy Jerry holding a test tube with about five drops of an acid and one atom of element 105, which we know because we then plated it out and put it into a radiation counter and saw one fission decay. You can do chemistry on a single atom. Okay? Why is this interesting to us? Part of the reason that this is interesting to us is we're beginning to see the hints that the periodic behavior predicted by Mendeleev is beginning to break down. And the reason is because of Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein was the guy who screwed up every branch of science. The guy was, the guy was, was just, he was an, an amazing irritant to everybody that thought they understood everything that they knew what they were doing. The problem with these elements is that uh, as the nuclear charge goes up, the velocity of the electrons around the nucleus, the ones closest to the nucleus, also have to increase. More, nuclear, more, more attractive charge, more speed required to keep them in their, in their orbits. By element 114, those electrons are moving at close to 90% the speed of light. Strange things happen as you approach the speed of light. One of them is that the mass of things tends to start to expand. When the mass of the electron expands, the electron travels closer to the nucleus, actually penetrates the nucleus slightly. The screening of nuclear charge changes. The chemical properties of the element perhaps change. Mendeleev can be forgiven because, I mean, he was way before relativity, okay? But at this point, while we would look at the periodic table and predict that to design an element 114 experiment, we need to design an experiment for lead, 
There are chemical calculations going on now which indicate that actually element 114 might be closer to radon. Okay. If you're making an atom every day or so of an element 114 isotope, and it has a half-life from that table we saw of three seconds, and you don't know anything about its chemical properties to design an experiment, you're talking about something that's really, really hard to do. So one of the ways you have to do this, you have to automate the process as much as possible. This is an area where, since I know that having talked to all of you folks now, you're all going to become heavy element chemists and I can retire. Uh, here, here's, your, here's your problem, okay? Uh, every day or so we make an element 114 atom that has a half-life of three seconds. So you can't collect it on a copper block and machine it off because when it hits, it starts, it decays as soon as it's produced. So what you have to do is, every few seconds, you have to do an element 114 chemistry and try to detect the atom and hope that the product that you finally make lives through your chemistry when it is produced. So you actually have to do the chemistry thousands of times to be able to see a single atom decay at some point in some chemical process. Okay? That is really hard. So the philosophy point you should take away is if I'm doing 114 chemistry on a sample with no atoms of element 114 in it, is, does that count as element 114 chemistry? I, I don't know. So, we're going to talk about now the end of the periodic table. So here are, here's the periodic table. Uh, elements 113 and 118 to, through 118, our experiments are, our uh, recent experiments are included. You can see that element 118 in the Mendeleev picture of things is expected to be like radon, but we know from Albert Einstein that it actually might be element 114. Strange things are happening up there. Other interesting things, we're talking about doing an experiment to try to find element 119. If you were designing a chemistry experiment for element 119, what would you use as your model element for the chemistry? I'd probably be picking francium-87 or cesium-55, right? Because they're in the same column. What's going to be really cool is when we finally get around to trying to make element 122, which is the second member of what's called the superactinides, that has no column to go in. At that point, the, the, the 18, which is really 32, becomes 50, and there is no element above. That's the first member of the G block of elements. We have no idea what its chemical properties are. That is going to be completely and totally cool, an entirely new class of chemical compounds. So to end this, I want to talk about, I just want to put up the, the team. Uh, the team that discovered plutonium was four people. Okay, these experiments are considerably more complicated. We work with a lot of people at the Joint Institute for Nuclear Research in Russia. Uh, we have collaborators at the Oak Ridge Laboratory, University of Nevada, Las Vegas, the Vanderbilt University. So thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.